Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and on today's program, we have with us Dean and Sarah. Dean is the founding and lead pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. He's also the author of the brand new book, The Unsaved Christian from Moody Press, The Unsaved Christian, subtitled Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel, a very needful topic. Dean, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, are you guys recovering from um, Easter pretty well? I know, um, you know, it's a big to do. Do you just put the, you know, the helicopter in the hangar and all that sort of thing? And... <laughs> we we have uh, we have recovered and are, are trying to get people to come back who are at the Easter service. It's always the next Sunday. <laughs> where did all these people go? Right, right. <laughs> That's where we're at. Now, this may be weird for people listening, wondering, because this probably will come out in July or something like that. But uh, so we're recording just a few weeks after after Easter. And so I always have to give Dean a hard time because he drops eggs and things. No, you don't do that. But we uh, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, in my mind, you do. <laughs> and so that's fine. I have to give you I'm glad hard. to be known as your attractional friend. You're my attractional friend. It's yes. good. You got to have one. They just keep you so I know what's hip and what's cool and. What you know? Do you have the pumpkin spice fog machine in the fall and all that sort of thing? You, hey, you're a big pumpkin spice guy, are you not? I didn't even think of that when I made that joke. But <laughs> I'm a big Starbucks guy, okay. and um, you know, so I go every day, including on Christmas Day. And oh, wow. you know, pumpkin spice is a big part of our brand at Starbucks. So I, I got to be for my people. <laughs> you say our brand? Like, <laughs> are you a stockholder? Uh, it should be. How, how am I not? Actually, now that I think about it, I know that's right. Well, I go almost every day, but yeah, I I I can't do the pumpkin spice. I'm not sure what that is. Whenever they do like the new, this is the new thing, the unicorn or whatever they're doing. I just I stay far away from that. Uh, all right, brother. So I want to ask you about this book. You were on the the podcast a long, long time ago. In fact, I probably should have looked up uh, when that was, but it was a um, one of our earliest episodes. And I remember asking you because I knew this was something you were working on or thinking about. Um, you know what kind of book you were working on, and uh, you 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 teased it then. And I mentioned, man, we'd love to have you back on once it comes out to talk about it. And here you are ready to talk about The Unsaved Christian, which, brother, is a very provocative title. What what do you mean by an unsaved Christian? Well, where I live, and I think in many parts of the United States, if you ask someone if they are a Christian, a lot of people are going to say yes. And by that, if you push a little bit further, they just simply mean they're not atheists, <laughs> right. and they're not Jewish or Muslim, yeah. and they're good people. So that means they're Christians. And when you read the scripture, and notice that in their answer, they said nothing about Christ, nothing about the gospel. Yeah. And when you read the scriptures, that's not a saving faith, just a generic theism that's and an association with Christianity. Uh, so that's where the whole unsaved Christian idea comes from, is that in their minds, they're Christians. But in terms of their answer for why that is the case, uh, they're clearly not. Yeah, so— you, you, I'm I'm guessing you would have uh, I'm reading the you know blurb here. You, you would have at your Easter service a fair number, perhaps, um, of unsaved Christians. Um, I assume that's still the case in the Bible Belt. Um, I'm, I haven't been in the Bible Belt for a while, but that Easter is still a big Sunday. It is absolutely. I yeah. mean, people come out full speed. Yeah. So I mean, like in New England, we didn't see that as much. There wasn't really a noticeable uptick. If if we saw an increase of of Easter Sunday attendance, it would have been among like visiting family of church members and that sort of thing. 
we saw a slight uptick around Christmas time. Somehow that kind of resonated a bit more, um, uh, you know, than than Easter did. But okay, so still a big deal. Um, a lot of um, well, you can presume there would be uh, a number of unsaved Christians um, at the church service. How do you address them? Right. So you know, you, you know, tell us what you did Easter Sunday. Is there a way that you're applying, in, you know, to this particular conundrum, or is it just, um, you know, the regular Easter gospel presentation and that sort of thing? Oh, I mean, we go full speed because we know people are willing to come. Our church attendance, like, almost literally doubles wow. on Easter Sunday. And we have our service at Florida State's basketball arena and get a massive crowd. <laughs> and you and didn't have probably, a helicopter. <laughs> and didn't have a helicopter. Okay. People just invited their friends. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's well, here, here's what you, people need to know about Easter and cultural Christians and really Christmas Eve as well. Going to church on Easter for them really has no religious significance. It's more just what you do. Yeah, It's no different than going to a fireworks show on the 4th of July, going trick-or-treating on Halloween, having turkey at Thanksgiving, or wearing green on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. Uh, it's just what you do. Uh, so part of their family tradition is on Easter Sunday, you take a picture in your pastels and your Lily Pulitzer dress out in the front yard. <laughs> and then you go to a church service together. Then you get to Nana's by two o'clock for ham. And then you call it a day. Yeah. Uh, so we're going, OK, if that's reality, then let's meet them right where they're at and take advantage of it. Uh, yeah. So what we do is we make sure we, we don't beat them up for coming. Here we are. You know, churches all over the country are praying that the Lord would bring them, you know, unbelievers on Easter Sunday. And then they all show up, and we give them a hard time for being there. <laughs> so, so, hey, so, nice so we, to and, see you. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen you all since Christmas. That's right. like, no, God's answered our prayers. They're here. Uh, but to really frame the question about how to think about this, I, I think you first have to understand that cultural Christianity is a different religion altogether. Okay. And that's one of the biggest cases I want to help people understand through the book. We kind of profile it at the very beginning is that this is not, these are not people who need to be discipled. These are not people who just need to kind of get it together and just get more serious about following Christ. These are people that truly are not Christians, even though they think they are. And again, I'm not the judge of who's a Christian, nor do I want to be, but the scriptures are. Yes. And these are people who would claim to be Christians, and they simply by that, again, mean they're not atheists. That's really all they mean. And so when they come to our service, I just make sure that I'm as clear as possibly I can be about why this holiday they're already claiming to acknowledge by even being here is most a significant event in the history of the world yeah. and how it truly does change everything. I mean, think about it. They come on Christmas Eve, which is the celebration of the incarnation. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> that the promised Messiah has come. And then Easter, that Christmas actually worked, that he died for our sins and rose from the grave. And those are the two days they acknowledge. It's really bizarre. Yeah. Uh, so I try to help them see that without beating them up. Okay. Just, just how significant these days are and how bizarre it is to just kind of give a hat tip to it and walk out the door and not be affected by it. Yeah. So that's kind of how we approach Easter. Okay. So you talk in the book about helping them get lost. Is there a way in which you sort of deconstruct someone's cultural Christianity? How do you help people who think they have, uh, you know, the saving faith by virtue of the fact that, yeah, they, you know, grew up with a church membership or – uh, they're not an atheist, as you say, or whatever it is. How do you help them uh, see their lostness? Um, you know, I did I did ministry in the Bible Belt. We planted a church in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, led young adult ministry there for a long time. And it was the most frustrating thing for me. I, I much preferred the clarity of evangelism in, in the Northeast because people weren't Christians and they knew it. 
And it, it just – that was so refreshing to me. In some cases, they would even be hostile to it. But in, in Nashville and in, in many places in Houston and, and others that I've lived, um, it, it's very much sort of like, oh, yeah, 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 I have that sort of thing. You know, why are you trying to sell me something I've already got? So how do you address that with people, help them to sort of see that, no, in fact, you, you are lost. You, you, you don't know Jesus. How do you do that? Well, I was really insecure about moving back down to the Bible Belt to be a pastor. I felt like I was kind of missionally selling out. Uh, it's like <laughs> when it's spring break, all your friends are going to work in an orphanage in Haiti, and you're going to the beach, you know, in Panama City. It's <laughs> yeah. like, uh, I'll pray for you. <laughs> it's kind of it's how I felt. And I had a conversation with my neighbor in the seminary parking lot when we were leaving to move back to Tallahassee, my wife and I. And he was going to Northern California to be part of a church planting team. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm selling out. He's the real guy going on mission. And in that conversation, he encouraged me and said that he thought where I was going was even more difficult. And again, I think everywhere is difficult, so I don't want to get in debate about which place is the toughest. But his reasoning for that was that where he was going, exactly what you said about New England, there is no confusion over who's a Christian and who's not. Right. And where I was going, again, everybody thinks they're fine, so you got to get them lost in order to get them saved. So what makes it complicated is there's no clear starting point in the Bible Belt. So you have to find one. Uh, so what I've realized is the most helpful starting point is what I call change the comparison game, because cultural Christians are very self-righteous. I don't mean that in a pharisaical way. I mean that more in a true confidence that they are really good moral people. Uh, the kind of two main tenets of cultural Christianity are generic, vague theism, not the God of the Bible, just kind of this idea of God, mm -hmm. and then that they're really good people. So why they think they're good people is they compare themselves to everybody else. And when you compare yourselves to other people, as long as you're keeping up with whatever the moral norm is in your suburban town, then you can always feel pretty good about yourself. They've never thought to actually compare themselves to the God they claim to believe in. Mm. And when we compare ourselves to God, obviously we fall short every single time, and then we see our need to be saved, our, our need for a Savior. But those things don't register in their minds. They might even know language like Jesus you know, died on the cross for our sins. They might even be able to articulate those kind of things, but what that actually means does not resonate with them at all. So my starting point and really where we land and go towards is to get them to change that comparison game and go, okay, I know you're a great person. By American standards, by our city in Tallahassee, you're one of the most respected people in our community. But what about when you compare yourselves to God? Like, do you, because they really do believe that good people go to heaven. Yeah. Like that, I would say that's the most dominant belief in America is that just good people go to heaven. Where is heaven? What is heaven? Who's in charge? They don't know. They don't care. It's just good people go there. Every funeral I've ever been to, we're told that now Uncle Steve's fishing with Uncle Jimmy at the big pond in the sky, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. And there's no reason for that outside the fact that Uncle Steve was a great guy. Uh, so I think that we really need to help them understand that. And then I'll take them to Galatians, where I'll talk about where, you know, in Galatians 2, where it says that if righteousness, you know, can be obtained by keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing. So let's talk about that. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? Well, well Yeah. Well, do you think he died for nothing? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's almost like offensive to them to even have to have that conversation because they claim to like Jesus and admire Jesus. I just try to poke holes in all those things. Yeah. So, well, let's troubleshoot that in a sense. Like, where does that come from? At what point did this trajectory begin where you have the most churched region um, of the United States that 
by and large, is able to articulate the gospel faithfully. I mean, you know, they haven't lost the plot in terms of what the gospel is. Uh, you know, there's not rank heresy in most Southern churches, uh, if any. Um, and so at, at one point did this trend begin that uh, what we produce, what comes out the other side, is this sort of cultural Christianity where um, I just you know, I, all I got to do is compare myself to others, or I'm I'm a good person. Uh, maybe even just sort of a mental articulate, uh, you know, mental affirmation of the gospel if tested. Um, and yet, the functional belief and the colloquial belief is this sort of moralistic, therapeutic deism kind of thing. How did that happen? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I don't think they think in terms of exclusivity either. So they might be able mm-hmm. to articulate some of the historical events of the gospel story in terms of the actual like crucifixion and resurrection. But I don't think they would cling to that exclusively for everybody else, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but where, where it happened is I think there was a generational breakdown. You know, you've heard it said before, I think it's common to hear in our kind of circles that, you know, one generation, I think I'm, I'm probably going to say it wrong, but one generation believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. The next one loses the gospel. Yeah. I think that's happened a lot in the South. Uh, but what's allowed it to still kind of simmer is uh, is that it's still part of our family heritage. So a lot of these people will still claim a church, but really it's their grandparents' church that they never actually go to except for on Easter and then probably Mother's Day. Yeah. So there's a way that has allowed just the idea of church and the basic concepts of Christianity to still play not really a part of their lives, but more of a part of their identity, which I think are two different things. So it doesn't affect anything. It's the old Carson quote, they want enough of Jesus to be associated with, but not enough to be personally inconvenienced. Uh, That's what's going on. (laughs) And and I think where it happened was that they just sort of drifted away from the local church and just drifted away from just their Bibles and just what it means to follow Jesus. That just kind of became an afterthought usually to their parents. And now the next, this third generation who now are adults themselves, it's just sort of out of sight, out of mind while still claiming to be Christians if asked, even though that means absolutely nothing. And it goes beyond the Bible belt. Like I have a chapter in the book on on Catholics and, and on nominal Catholicism yeah. on mainline Protestantism, which still you know is all over the country. Uh, it's. It, I think we have to think of it in terms of that generic theism, yeah. not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Yahweh of the Bible, but this sort of big guy in the sky that Nana had real convictions over and actually believed in the God of the Bible. Her <laughs> adult children kind of wandered away because the church was a little too strict, too legalistic, and, and they just were kind of over it. And then now the next generation, they really believe that they can be good people. Jared, I want to go back in time in a time machine and find the person that first made up the idea that you could have church on the golf course by yourself or fishing in a boat <laughs> or on the treadmill, that the church is everywhere. We are the church. I want to go find that person and put them in the figure four leg lock until they tap out <laughs> uh, because that mindset has ruined a lot of things for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that that's, I, I don't know how ancient that is, but um, you know, C.S. Lewis give, uh, gives an example of a fellow saying that to him, um, not the golf course necessarily, but just sort of in nature, like at the beach or something like that. Uh, I, I believe in mere Christianity, and it was a retired Royal Air Force 
uh, veteran um, saying, you know, that he had encountered God out, you know, when he was in service. And so he, you know, he doesn't need the church. And uh, in, in a sense, it doesn't even really even need theology because he experiences God out in the, you know, out in the wilderness or what have you. And Lewis gives a good you know, illustration of, of something like, you know, I have no doubt you can experience God in his creation. And yet, you know, how much better would that be if you had a map to all the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. so he's like, you know, theology and church is like actually having the map to, you know, you know, even to better understand, uh, you know, what it is that you're experiencing, that sort of thing. Um, I want to come back to the question of reaching um, Catholics, whether it's, you know, nominal Catholics or what have you, because I know that you um, speak to generational Catholics in the book. Um, I also want to talk about mainline Protestants. But before we get there, um, I want to ask you about some barriers to reaching cultural Christians. Um, you've mentioned a few just in the sense of like, you know, their, um, you know, standard beliefs, you know, kind of the, um, you know, the sentimental theology of the cultural Christian what are some ways that are, you know, just kind of hindrances for, um, you know, faithful evangelicals who are actually wanting to reach their neighbors? Yeah, one, I think that it's really offensive to, you know, to suggest yeah. that someone who claims to be a Christian is not. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, you can imagine just what it would be like if your entire life you've considered yourself a Christian and then your next door neighbor might suggest to you you're not. So I think people are just a little scared as well. And I understand that it does take courage. Uh, to to really minister to cultural Christians. And I think one of the biggest barriers is that in the cultural Christian's mind, the only difference between themselves and maybe someone who actually is following Christ, who is like a born-again believer, it is not that one's a Christian and one's not. In their mind, that person is just more into it than they are. They're just more extreme. <laughs> yes. you know, they just might say, oh, they're just really into their religion. That's they're right. really religious. But yeah. that's usually how they word it. But in their mind, they are too. They're just not quite like that. Right. Uh, so they think that because of the, that, that, that they're going to change, they're going to become more like that person next door. And in their minds, that person's just extreme. Little do they know that person's just convinced of what Christ has done for them. And their life now has been reoriented around that, that truth. Uh, yeah. Again, they don't have categories to that in their mind because being a Christian is more about heritage and about being a good person. And, and just about kind of a, a, ch- a box to check on a, on an application or some kind of survey asking what your religion is. This would be a lot easier if there was a box for cultural Christian, <laughs> uh, but the category doesn't exist. Right. So ha- in the book, I'm really kind of trying to create a category for us and help us to see it's a different religion altogether. Uh, but and then I, w- I would say another barrier is they've had enough exposure to church things, so they think they're fine because they know the lingo. So if you know the lingo, and you can even name a church that you go to, even though you don't, side note, but if you name a church you go to, those things just kind of self-justify yourself. That, hey, we're great people. We're the Smiths. The Smiths are just great people, and, and these are the things that we do. And my grandmother is the greatest Christian who's ever lived. <laughs> she prays every day, even though you don't pray at all. It's just those kind of things. It's just, so just enough familiarity and association to really keep one from seeing their actual need and that disconnect. And a lot of them go to churches, just to be really plain and simple, that don't preach the gospel. Yeah. A lot of cultural Christianity reigns in mainline Protestantism or kind of in the Baptist church model where the gospel is kind of tacked on to the end. Yeah. And they've never really seen the implications of it for all of life. Faith is more kind of associated with being a good person, patriotism, going to church, you know, sign up, that that type of thing. Yeah, sort of the civic religion kind of Civic religion, yeah. yeah. I have a whole chapter in the book on civic religion. Yeah. All right, let's take a coffee break and hear a word from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. 
Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. Okay, we're back. We're speaking with Dean and Sarah. He is pastor, founding pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida, and author of the new book, The Unsaved Christian. We've been speaking about really just sort of the different category that a cultural Christian um, um, occupies. Really, it's just a, um, a mission field, uh, an evangelistic um, opportunity. Um, I want to come back to sort of the troubleshooting question. There, You, you have a uh, a few chapters, Dean, on um, how we got here, where this comes about, um, what even church practices might be unintentionally uh, sort of forming this. But before we get there, I, w- I do want to ask you about these other. Um, I-, I assume they would. I assume they would be in the same uh, category as a cultural Christian, and yet it's a different animal than kind of the lapsed. Uh, Baptist or Methodist or uh, what have you. Let's talk about the generational Catholic. Um, what What is your approach in the book to reaching those folks? Well, my grandfather and my entire dad's side of the family is Catholic. It's how we are a t- an Italian family. Uh, so I do feel like I can speak to this. I'm, I don't want to be the guy that speaks about, you know, a, a religion that I, you know, have nothing to do with. Uh, so my grandfather really shaped a lot of that chapter. He's been, he's passed away about 10 years ago. We were very close and my grandfather had really nothing in his life that was Catholic besides really kind of cro- doing the cross on himself uh, before he would pray before dinner. Uh, but he insisted that we were all Catholic, even <laughs> though we had never actually been Catholic before. And it's besides my dad. So we're having a conversation one day when I'm a kid and we're watching Notre Dame football. My grandpa always liked Notre Dame. And, and I asked him why we were, you know, why he liked Notre Dame. And he told me because I'm Catholic. And I asked him what that meant. And he told me that he was Catholic and my dad was Catholic and my uncles were Catholic. My uncles are atheists, both of them. <laughs> I, have, I have a great relationship with both of them. We have great conversations. They're both, if you called them right now and said, are you atheist? They would say yes. <laughs> so well, my grandpa and I talked about that. And I said, Papa, I said, that's what I called them. I said, my, they're, they're atheists. And he goes, yeah, but they're Catholic. <laughs> and that might sound like an extreme example, but it's actually really not. Because for the nominal Catholic, the identity in being Catholic is more important than believing Catholic. Yeah. I had a mother of the groom at a wedding one time come up to me at their wedding rehearsal and asked me if I would wear a priest collar during the wedding. <laughs> and I just kind of did the head tilt, look at her like, what in the world are you talking about? And, and I knew her well enough. I grew up with her son. And I said, what? <laughs> I said, no, of course I'm not doing that. Why would you suggest that? She said, my mom's going to be here tomorrow coming down from Pennsylvania, and she would have an absolute stroke if it was a priest that wasn't doing the wedding. <laughs> and I said, we better have EMS on standby because I ain't wearing a priest collar. That seems like a bridge that should have been crossed. It mattered, this whole idea, you got to please grandma, got to do those type of things. So we have a lot of, since we're in, in Florida, uh, there's a lot of Catholics in Florida because of South Florida, the Miami area, West Palm area, Fort Lauderdale okay. uh, is heavy Catholic. 
And a lot of them come to Tallahassee because Florida State's a state school. So, you know, in-state tuition, tons of people come here. And one of the biggest barriers, we'll have them actually come to our services, get engaged with our college ministry. But when it, when it comes time to get baptized or to have real next kind of level spiritual conversations, they're terrified about their family. Mm-hmm. Because the thought of leaving the Catholic Church, even though they had no Catholic actual convictions, is the most important thing over any faith itself. I'm not saying all Catholics are like that. But with nominal Catholicism, that's the most important thing. We had a family in our church who's been coming to our Easter service for the past three years, and they didn't come this year. And their reason was the last two years they came and they were hurricanes. They're in the insurance business. So when hurricanes come, it's not good for them. Yeah. Uh, so they were, and they're like the provider. Uh, so they were in the insurance business. In the last two years, they skipped mass and came to our service instead. And they think that's why the hurricanes came. <laughs> These are like regular, these are level-headed, normal people, okay? Yeah. These are not strange folks. So they went to Mass this year because for them it's just one big superstition. And we're a little scared to talk about those realities and Catholicism yeah. a lot because I don't think we, won't, we don't want to come across as being mean-spirited or divisive. But for a lot of Catholics, that really is how it works. You haven't been in church in 20 years. All of a sudden, uh, your, you know, your wife gets pregnant, so you run down to get the baby christened. You're not at church again until the baby has to go through more to the baby's a little bit older in elementary school and has to go through religious education and first communion and confirmation. And then all of a sudden you show back up again because it's all just kind of one big rite of passage and really doesn't mean much at all. And I just talk about that and say, OK, let's engage about these people who claim to believe the Bible. So let's really take them the scriptures and go, OK, here's what this says about all these things that you claim to believe but don't seem to practice. And it's worked for us. When we really present nominal Catholics as the actual true gospel, it rocks their world. Hmm. Was there a hurricane this year? Um, we had one last year. So I'm actually secretly hoping we have one just because of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was going to say. About no one gets hurt. Yeah, no you know, they may be onto something. <laughs> you don't know. Uh, so um, speak briefly to the, the issue of mainline Protestants. Is there, I mean, what's similar, what's different in, in your outreach to them? Yeah, and I call that I call that chapter the watered down word. Yeah, and what I've noticed, I was raised mainline Protestant, and I went to church every single Sunday unless we were sick or out of town. And truly, I never had anyone tell me I needed to be saved. Never, not one time. I went to a fellowship of Christian athletes retreat, and I heard a gospel presentation for the first time in my life. I joke on the first person to ever come to Jesus and be mad about it. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong; I had joy, but I really was ticked. And as a thirteen-year-old, I'm like walking the aisle, like old-fashioned invitation. And in my mind is how I've been in church my entire life, and I've never heard this before. Mm. So much, not all. There are some remnant faithful mainline congregations, don't get me wrong. But much of mainline Protestantism in America are, is really a battle, just kind of the, I guess, an oasis of unsaved Christianity, uh, where it's a Christless Christianity or a crossless Christianity, as many have called it before. Uh, so mainline Protestants, our, our strategy is 100% be, treat them like they're lost. Uh, it's not sheep swapping if they come to our church. It's evangelism. And we have seen mainline Protestants like myself, you know, who have come to know Christ simply because they were confronted with the Bible by someone they trusted in a loving way uh, that just helped them understand, hey, what you're doing here is not what the Bible says. I would say a high majority of our baptisms we've had over the years are nominal Catholics who have come to faith in Christ and mainline Protestants who have come to faith in Christ. And for mainline Protestants, it all was because they had no idea that the Bible they claimed to believe in 
was saying completely different things in their pluralistic, you know, inclusivist uh, pastor, what he would be preaching on Sundays. Okay, let's circle back now to really kind of troubleshooting this issue. What are some things that churches are doing, perhaps that would be, you know, an unintentional way of, of creating or cultivating this problem? For instance, you mentioned um, in the book, you have a chapter on church membership, which is something that a lot of folks don't think through in terms of how that might actually be shaping uh, something like cultural Christianity. So how exactly would uh, one's view of church membership create or contribute to this problem? Yeah, well, if church membership means nothing, asks nothing, and requires nothing, then it's going to result in a faith that does the exact same. Uh, so I had someone, or we just started the church. We were in our 20s, totally green, just excited, you know, proud to bully. In those early days in church planning, you're more just trying to get a crowd, sadly, until, until you kind of think through things and, and mature a little bit about what the goal of this actually is. Mm. And at our first ever membership meeting, we didn't even know what that meant. We kind of wanted you to sign up and basically give money. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I had someone up, come up to me afterwards and ask the question, uh, now that I'm a member today, what changes tomorrow? Mm. And I froze and had nothing to say back. I like just stumbled on my words and said a uh, hundred times and, and just gave some bad answer. And that really made me go, whoa, you know, I, and I hadn't done much reading on that. I hadn't studied that very much church membership. It was kind of, you know, a lot of times in, in Baptist life, especially tr- traditional Baptist church, a lot of church membership is you walk the aisle during an invitation, you come down and you shake the pastor's hand. There's a volunteer with a card for you to fill out in the front row. Within three seconds when the song is over, they bring you up in front of the congregation and say, hey, this is the in Sarah family. And they are coming by statement of whatever. Right. Uh, all that affirm them, please respond by saying amen. Everybody yeah. says amen. And now you're a church member. You're a church member. And it means nothing. And so that, that that's I think without even intentionally doing it, we are cultivating this idea of church affiliation and even really Christian faith that actually requires and asks and means nothing of us. Like we're we're a lot of the mega church in America. I'm not anti mega church at all. I pastor a large church, but you know I'm not anti. We're not like you know big huge city mega church. But but one of the ways those churches have been built, sadly, is through cultural Christianity. And they'd never admit that. They'd be mad at me saying that, but. That's reality is a lot of it's just a, a just come and be a part of it and come to some of our stuff. And it's just really troubling. Yeah. Um, what about the way we even present the gospel? Is there, um, you know, you mentioned the the, you know, the ease in which someone can become a member. What about the way someone might profess faith? Is that having uh, an, yeah, an impact I, here? It's a big deal. Uh, what's happened is in cultural Christianity uh, that's allowed it to kind of spur on especially with younger like kids and teenagers, the gospel presentation became who wants to go to heaven when you die? <laughs> Who's not going to raise their hand? Yeah, who I think, says the, no athlete, to that? I think <laughs> the atheists just raised their hand, right? Yeah. And who wants to go to heaven when you die? Everybody raises their hand, every kid in the room. Okay, if you want to make sure you're going to be in heaven when you die, repeat this prayer after me. Hmm. So basically what we just did was we made the gospel question who wants to go to heaven when you die? And then gave you a hocus pocus magic words to say to get there. And I just want to be really careful with that. And because of our right belief in eternal security, sadly, it's been butchered. Again, I think even unintentionally uh, by people that have made it where questioning someone's salvation is like considered almost a sinful thing to do. When Paul wrote to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith to the Corinthian church, 
And so I think our assurance and actually making sure we truly have right assurance are not at odds with each other. So I think a lot of times you'll see believing grandparents or parents that even though their adult child is nowhere near the faith, don't even tell you he or she is not, they're not sharing the gospel. They're not even like really saying much to him about it because they insist he's a Christian because he prayed that prayer at VBS when he was six. Yeah, I'm not saying you can't be saved as a six-year-old. I mean, I do believe that Jesus said, let the children come to me. But let's just make sure we get it right rather than trying to rush it and force it. Okay. Okay, so, Dean, um, you know, I was raised in this kind of environment. We went to church on Christmas and Easter, and I'm having this sort of crisis of faith now. What if I don't really believe what I think I do? Or what if I've never really believed and I'm convicted by this conversation um, how would I know if I'm a cultural Christian or not? I think two things. I think one is belief. We have to make sure that we're believing rightly. Um, and, and by that, I mean that your answer to why you are a Christian, it can become that today, but hasn't been. Your answer to why you're a Christian is the work of Christ on your behalf. It's, it's not an, any kind of appealing to yourself, to your actions, to your morals, to your past church attendance, to your grandmother. Any, your, your heritage, that you're an American, anything like that. So I think, first of all, getting our beliefs right, that everything that is our identity of being a Christian is the fact that what we believe that Jesus has accomplished for us, and now our desire to repent of our sins and follow him. And that's the next step, is that we're repenting of our sins, like that we're regularly, that this actually means something, uh, that we're responding in obedience to God's word, to the grace we've been given, to the fact that we have been saved onto good works. So I think it's belief and then our response and repentance regularly to those things. So that can begin for somebody today where you can say, hey, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not even trying to get you to, to have a faith crisis. I'm just trying to get someone to say, okay, what is the faith? <laughs> and the faith is grounded in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. Uh, so, And then that must lead to something, which is saying, Jesus, here's my life. And that's what I would encourage somebody with. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what what would you say to someone who is concerned about whether that speaks to kind of a, a work salvation. Like, how do I know, um, how do I test my fruit in such a way that I'm not also, you know, believing in a false gospel of I'm saved by my my output or my or my works? Yeah, for me, what I've always tried to check at the door is my motivation for doing things. That doesn't mean you always have to feel like it, because I think maturity works through the days we don't feel like it. But, like, I want my motivation for things not to be the applause of others, not to be a list I feel like I have to keep but really a response to, to Jesus and what he's accomplished for me and, I, and growing in a love for him and of him. Uh, my grandpa had a grapefruit tree in his backyard. I know nothing about trees, nothing about citrus trees. The only reason I knew that it was a grapefruit tree is that it had grapefruits on it. That's the only reason. <laughs> okay. So in the same way, we must bear fruit. And that's not legalistic. That's not works based. It is we, we didn't grow the fruit ourselves. We're bearing the fruit. <laughs> You know, yeah. the, the, and so I think that that is that's an important thing for us to do. And we have to make sure that in our gospel centered tribe that we never make speaking to the moral, I guess, responses that we give as, as bad things. Uh, because, again, the, the Christian life is life of repentance. But we believe it's God's kindness that leads us to that. That's so even right. that's an act of grace. Yeah. Well, that is a great note to wrap up on. Dean and Sarah is the author of the book, The Unsaved Christian. Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. It is available now wherever good Christian books are sold. Uh, published by Moody Publishers. Uh, just came out a couple months ago, so it's really hot off the press. I would highly recommend it to those of you sort of 
navigating um, even the Bible Belt's trend towards kind of a post-Christian or um, you know post-Christendom culture. Uh, this cultural Christianity is still just enmeshed with where we are, and uh, I think this would be a great book to help you with your uh, missional thinking and evangelistic strategy. Really. Uh, identifying the people um, around you, the idols of, of people around you, and helping you uh, adorn the gospel well uh, as you seek to apply it to the state of the lost. Dean, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you, um, dear listener. Um, as always, if you enjoy the program, please share us with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.